right, everyone. This is The Past Within, and I'm JT O'Connell. Thanks for listening. Rather than do a full episode on why it took me so long, why I was taking so much time between episodes, and uh, I believe I explained on the last episode briefly why I had to rename it and why this is going to be a new podcast. I think this will be better anyway, even though I'm not going to change the format that much. I would like to get into bringing people on to have discussions, um, people you might have heard of, people who are just friends of mine, maybe, um, to explore topics. But that is to be arranged down the road as I find time for it. So rather than do a full episode on what's been going on, I'm just going to briefly state a few things. Uh, Many of the people who listen to this show already know these things. I've gotten into several other uh, uh, areas of interest. I got into crypto recently, which is uh, lately been a bit rough, but if you're looking on a long-term scale, I think it'll, I think it'll play out. I think it'll do well. Uh, and actually crypto is going to play a little bit into the topic that I'm going to be talking about in a little bit later. But another thing that I've been trying to do, trying to work on here and there is starting a business. And I might actually just pitch the business on here because if someone else can actually do it, great. I would like to do it, but I don't know that I have the business chops to actually get this thing started. But that's for another episode that will not be for this episode. Um, I really, I'm not even so interested in starting the business in order to make money. It would be fine to make a living at it because it would definitely consume an awful lot of my time for probably a decade or more. Um, But I think the business should be started uh, because it's a great opportunity and uh, I think there's a really good moral case for it. Um, but I'll pitch that on another day and anyone who wants to try, you know, taking that idea and running with it, uh, before I manage to, that's fine. Uh, it would be great for somebody to do it anyway. Uh, yeah, so I've been slowly working on that. I've actually been working on my house lately as well. And I've been trying to do a little bit of writing every day, uh, as well outside of the realms of, you know, active concern of what's going on. So another part of it, though, those are all just the things that were occupying my time. A lot of what was occupying my thoughts is I don't necessarily think that more uh, introspection in our culture is a good thing. I actually think we have too much introspection. We have too much dwelling on one's thoughts, too much dwelling on one's identity. Uh, And this is true kind of all over the place. I think a lot of uh, a lot of people, myself included, perhaps myself too much more than the average person, uh, try to identify a meaning and a cause in their life, a purpose for being that is mostly focused on reacting to the society itself. Whereas perhaps you should actually be building a business, building a family, um, fixing up your house, arranging you know, some sort of charity in your community, uh, maybe those are the things that should actually occupy your life. And so that's part of why I was trying to do other things because, uh, unless I really feel confident in what I have to say, or I really want to explore something, which is most of the time what I'm doing, I'm more exploring a topic than it's something that I'm already confident in. Although there are some things, uh, it's probably, it's probably not good to just inject more introspection out there. Uh, I, like I said, I think we just have too much. I think there are too many people whose, uh, view of reality is like this special thing that they're crafting and it's this thing that they can't take out of their vision. It's like, 
special types of glasses that they don't know how to take off. And because they're constantly working on these glasses, they actually can't see many of the things that are out there that the glasses obstruct uh, or that the lenses are twisting outside of uh, reality. So, yeah, I just I, I, I feel like I, I just want to regulate what I say on my podcast and perhaps I was doing that too much. Uh, also, this goes to a little bit of what was going on on my previous podcast, uh, what I said on my previous podcast. I worry that we have, that our civic religion is at an end, that our civic uh, engagement is actually at an end. Um, There was the old saying that libertarians hated from John Kennedy, that you should not ask what your country can do for you, but you should ask what what you can do for your country, which is to say, what Kennedy was saying was that um, don't don't demand that your country provide um, like special benefits to you try to find a way to be of service to your country, which in retrospect is a much more conservative message than I took it for when I was younger, because when I was younger, I always regarded that from kind of a libertarian perspective of like, oh, okay, wait, so you're asking that people be subjects of the state and just be cogs in the machine. Now, you can interpret it that way, but I think in context of what what Kennedy was saying, it's much more that Kennedy was saying that you should be a a member of your society and you should be a valid and contributing member of that society. So it's not just that the society should give you stuff and you should be uh, happy to receive stuff from your society. You should feel compelled to find a way to contribute to your society uh, as just as a, a measure of the fact that your society has already given you things like freedom of speech, like the ability to uh, earn Uh, like the ability to own property, the ability to start a business, the ability to raise a family, the ability to move across the country if you want, to move somewhere else. Um, So that's generally uh, what's been on my mind. But what I want to talk about today, um, civic religion. So there are several aspects of civic religion that I don't think are very well understood. First off, let me make a distinction between civic religion and... um, uh, social capital, because those are very like closely intertwined things in my mind, and I don't know if people understand what I mean when I say civic religion. So social capital, as understood in an economic context, is the uh, cultural prerequisites that might give you uh, uh, a better propulsion towards uh, success in the, in the marketplace. Uh, so, you know, It's well known that uh, children of Asian immigrants to the United States and Jewish families in particular tend to do well in school. And that's not because the tests are unfair. That's not because the teaching mode is unfair. It is because those households place an enormous cultural import on academic achievement. And to a large degree, that is responsible for the, uh, the wage gap and the skills gap that you see between those two communities and the rest of the communities in America. Um, and then some of those other you know, gaps that uh, per- persist within a lot of uh, other communities, uh, there, are, there are more details involved. But for the most part, with those two communities, it really is just an enormous amount of emphasis on scholastic achievement. That is... Uh, that is social capital. That is to say that when you uh, are 
driving your kids to establish themselves in very meaningful realms, then you are uh, propelling them towards success. And uh, um, communities that do not place such an overwhelming drive in those arenas are not giving uh, their kids the same amount of social capital. And once lost, social capital is extremely difficult to regain. It's, it's not an easy thing for a community in general to just pick up because then you have to have a change in mindset. You have to have a change in mindset as to how children are raised, as to how families are structured, as to how time should be spent, as to how uh, we should uh, feel about people spending their times in different ways. Um, that's social capital. Civic religion is a very similar idea, but it's more rather than you being driven to achieve um, for yourself and your family, it's a matter of finding a way to um, find a place within within your society itself uh, so that you are contributing to the, the, the country that you exist in or the neighborhood that you exist in. It doesn't have to be a country. It can just be a neighborhood. So social capital, as I understand it, is primarily focused on you achieving for your own personal success and as a result of that, uh, also providing great benefits to your fellow man uh, in, in an Adam Smith sort of uh, invisible hand sense. S civic religion is you should feel some obligation to be of service to the society that has in fact given you some things, which is not to say that the society... It's not to say the society needs to be perfect, but the society needs some amount of respect. And if you are going to make adaptations within that society, then you should have some amount of reverence for certain things within that society. Because if it's all bad, then it's time for a revolution. And that's where you know a portion of the country is at right now, several portions of the country um, in general. But let me talk more specifically about um, money, because... I have been interested in crypto lately, and this has actually, you know, kind of triggered some thoughts that I'd had years and years ago that I think are actually better ways of looking at it. And I guess uh, just talking to people, I get the impression that a lot of people just don't quite understand finance. They don't quite understand what money is and why crypto is um, such a danger to the to the existing uh, financial structure. Um, so people make the mistake that of thinking that money is an end in and of itself. Money is not an end in and of itself. Even gold doesn't have to be an end in and of itself. It can be an end in and of itself if you are talking about making some fine jewelry or if you are talking about using it to make electronics because gold and silver will both have real industrial values. There are products that require gold and silver to to do certain things um, in certain ways. You can probably do those things without gold and silver, but gold and silver are good in certain uh, technological uses. But money in and of itself is not actually a good or bad thing. It has value. It has a very specific value. What money does is it allows you to uh, not necessarily have to be an expert in everything. So money allows you to make trades with other people, and those people can be experts in, in those things. And the relative pricing that is placed upon things 
in the form of money, in the form of this exchange medium. That's all money is. Money is just a way of us exchanging goods without having to worry about the goods themselves. Oh, I need to buy, I need to buy broccoli for a dish. And for those of you who don't like broccoli out there, just substitute pepperoni or something you do like. Uh, I need to buy broccoli for a dish. So now I have to find somebody who grows broccoli who also needs what I make. Well, all I make is watches. So I got to find a broccoli grower who needs a watch. Money facilitates that transfer. I can give the broccoli maker or the broccoli farmer uh, some money. He can um, give me the broccoli and then he can take that money and go buy what he needs to buy. Maybe he needs to buy new overalls or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't have to know. It's just I just don't have to care what he actually wants to do with the money. It's not important. That's the point. The point of money is to make it unimportant to you what the person you are trying to do a business deal with actually wants to do with that money because that money has a value in and of itself on the basis of other people will take it as a medium for exchange. Um, that way we're, we're lubricating barter, basically. Barter back in the day was that thing of like, okay, well, we're going to trade stuff. So we have to find in this moment uh, a relative value of these products. And at that point, you're both taking risks um, because you're taking a risk that you're going to be better off by trading these things. But maybe you aren't. By making all trades uh, on a basis of money, you are establishing a, an like a risk reduction scenario and you're establishing a uh, an information transfer scenario. Boy, the price of broccoli is way up. I don't know why, but I guess instead of having broccoli, maybe we should just have spinach or something because spinach's prices are down, I see. Uh, that doesn't happen so explicitly, but that is what commodities markets are. Commodities markets are a way of adjusting people's behavior so that um, supply and demand you know, maybe there was a drought or something, or maybe there was, uh, uh, you know, a snafu in shipping or something like that. And maybe there is just some reason why one product is not necessarily as available here as it once was. Recently, we saw uh, lumber prices spike. Well, that was because a lot of the lumber mills were shutting down because of COVID. So what was happening was that lumber prices had to go up as a way of conveying information like, hey, 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 stop using so much lumber. Only use lumber if you absolutely need it. And don't throw out that old lumber that you were pulling out of houses. That actually has value. Please use that because there's just not enough lumber coming on in the market in order to fulfill the demand that is there. So that was a way of, without anyone who was buying lumber, being able to see, oh gosh, you know, lumber's really expensive. I don't know if I really want to reframe that one wall. Let's just see if we can uh, do something else with it because lumber is just too expensive. Or getting people who might have been interested in building a deck right now, well, let's hold off for a while because lumber is just too expensive. And there are people who did that. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a way of getting people to adjust their behavior without having to know why they need to adjust their behavior. The why for them is it's too expensive. But the why might be the lumber mills were shutting down uh, or like there were issues with um, with forestry because we're going to be more concerned about where we're getting this lumber from. That's the important thing of money. That's why money is important. Now, now we get to talk about why uh, the dollar is, is not necessarily a good reserve of uh, medium. It's not a good medium for this anymore. Um, the dollar is not a good medium 
and hasn't been for a while because modern monetary theory has been playing with this notion that they can expand the dollar supply, they can expand the money supply, and by using that new money that is created, lent out to entrepreneurs, they can uh, establish new businesses and new products in the economy, and then everybody wins as a result. Um, That is true to an extent. What they do is they print more money, mostly digitally. That money is sent out to banks. Those banks make loans to people who are trying to start businesses. And a lot of those businesses do good things. They produce things. They hire people. So that all sounds good, except for the fact that what is being done here is that the buying power of the dollar, as held by everyone else in the economy, has gone down insofar as the dollar has been expanded. Now, bear with me here. This gives a lot of people headaches, and it's really boring to a lot of people, but this is really important. If, let's just pretend that the economy is $100, and that there are 10 loaves of bread being made every year, and that's what it is. So, the economy is 10 loaves of bread, the amount of money out there is $100, so whoever makes one of those loaves of bread sells it for $10 or whatever, uh, and gets the $10, and then the person who buys the loaf of bread now has the loaf of bread. Um, And so, you know, this is a very, 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 very stripped-down economy. There aren't even multiple products that we get to worry about here. If you go ahead and print 10 more dollars, then it's going to cost $11 per loaf of bread. Why? Because now there are $110, but there are only 10 loaves of bread. So as you expand the money supply, that expansion has to be distributed across the entire economy. But what's going on is they expand the money supply because it's a fiat currency, and then they funnel that expansion into the pockets of entrepreneurs to try things out, to try out businesses and things like that. And that might be good, but it might be bad. And because it's a fiat currency, the people who make the decision to expand the currency and the people who make those loans are the ones who are deciding what additional uh, products are being placed on the market. And yet, the buying power of the rest of the market goes down. So your buying power goes down. My buying power goes down. The buying power of almost everyone that you know goes down because that money has been expanded and placed into the marketplace under the auspices that these uh, entrepreneurial expansions are going to be good for the economy as a whole, but they might be good for the economy as a whole. They might not. And in fact, it might just be a directing, because the the cost of money has gone down so much, meaning if I want to borrow money to start a business, my interest rate is extremely low. That's what this means. If the interest rate was higher, it would be paying the people who are putting money in the bank to loan you that money. You need to start a business. Well, you need to go to the bank and they need to get it from their uh, depositors. The depositors need to say, well, okay, we can loan, we could, I'll put money in the bank and you, the bank can loan it out, but I need like 3% back a year uh, instead of what's going on right now where I lose three to 7% because if I store money in the bank, then inflation comes and that money just goes out to, uh, Uh, to entrepreneurs, and that money never comes back to the people who save their money in the bank. So it pays you better to spend your money or to convert it into something that is inflation-proof than it does for you to save money. But really, these entrepreneurs should be going to the banks, and the banks should be paying an interest rate to the people who are storing their money in the bank. So the problem of what's going on is that the, the Federal Reserve and the banking system 
has taken away the ability of the average person to actually have a say in directing this new money. So you don't get to decide whether or not, uh, you know, this, this guy up the street will start a business on your dime. You just don't get to decide that. That money gets taken out of your account through inflation. Yes, you might have saved $100,000 or whatever. And I know very few people uh, these days actually do that. But you might have saved a good chunk of money. But that good chunk of money two or three years from now is not going to be anywhere near as good a chunk of money as it was when you first saved it. And that's because they've been printing money. And so your buying power goes down and none of that comes back to you. It might come back to you in the form of you know, um, new products that you might be interested in and so forth. And the competitive pressures that are placed on the economy from those new products and from those new resources and from those new businesses might have a benefit as well. But you should also be getting paid on the other end when that money that is yours, the actual value that you saved is being loaned out out from under you with uh, some some uh, creative financial uh, methods. That's why crypto is important. Crypto is important because as a decentralized finance system, the true cryptos, there are cryptos out there that are not decentralized, but tr true cryptos, decentralized finance, outlays specific things that will happen in terms of the creation of new coins, the destruction of old coins, and things like that. And literally, no single person, no single entity has a control to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and make a, you know, 10,000 extra coins and then loan them out and then keep the returns myself. And that's literally what happens with banking. That is literally what happens with banking. That's why banking and finance uh, are lucrative prospects. Now, I'm not a radical. I'm also not a gold bug. I wasn't a... Uh, uh, a fan of Ron Paul or anything like this. I, I never, I, I've never had a problem with fractional reserve banking. It just needs to be made clear to people who are storing their money in the in that bank what's going on. Just like you should be clear about what contract you sign when you borrow money, you should also be clear about what's going on when you're storing money. So if you're going to store your money in a bank, inflation shouldn't be eating it away. So you can stash your money in a bank, but there's moths eating it. It's going away. If you store your money in that bank long enough, it'll all be gone. Or its buying power will all be gone. Uh, and it's only going to get more and more um, aggressive as time goes on. We do actually risk the uh, what's called the inflation trap. And I know a lot of people know about that. And if you don't know about that, the basic idea is that eventually, at, like for each new dollar that you print... For each new dollar that you just fiat create in the marketplace, the buying power of the other dollars goes down. And so as you expand this money supply, it takes more and more and more new dollars in order to re like produce the value that you're trying to distribute. So suppose, you know, um, in the 1960s, somebody was trying to borrow a million dollars just to start a really big factory or something like that, or a really big business concern or to put up a bridge or something or to put up a building. Real estate is also another example that's uh, great for this. A million dollars in the 60s was a lot of money. That was an awful lot of money. It's still a lot of money. It's nothing like what it was in the 60s. You could look it up. It's it's. Um, my guess is it would be at least worse, uh, worth less than half now of what it was in the 1960s. So, suppose you wanted to put up a building of similar, um, of similar size here. Uh, in the, the 2020s. 
as opposed to the 1960s, 60 years ago. You're not going to be able to do it for a million dollars. And not just because wage rates have gone up, not just because of union prevailing wages and things like that, but a million dollars just plain doesn't buy what it used to buy. So now you, you might need 20 or $30 million to do that. And so the inflation trap is, as you've expanded this money supply further and further, to get the next incremental benefit of printing money by your estimation, you have to print an ever larger sum of money. And eventually that hits a point where you're printing money so quickly and people are losing value so quickly that the money is basically meaningless. You have Weimar Germany, you have uh, uh, Robert Mugabe, you have Venezuela, you have money that you know you take take around a wheelbarrow full of 100s and you can't buy a loaf of bread with that because they've just printed so much freaking money. Now, as I said earlier, they're not really printing money um, at accelerated rates in my understanding. Most of what's actually going on is now digital currency, but that should scare people. Because if all they can do, if all they do now is just add zeros on there, they don't even have to go through the process of running a printing press and distributing currency to banks because they can just put these things into accounts and it's just bits flowing back and forth. That's the benefit of crypto, specifically Bitcoin and several of the others, but I'll use Bitcoin because it is the big, great example right now. Bitcoin is limited to 21 million coins. There will never be any more than 21 million coins. So Bitcoin's value will float up and down based upon how many people are willing to to buy or sell Bitcoin at any given time. But they will never be able to, okay, well, let's just, instead of 200, or I'm sorry, instead of 21 million coins, let's just make it 210 million coins. And then suddenly the value of all these coins you, you spent this time to accumulate has gone down. In fact, Bitcoin is a deflationary currency because with a limit to the number of coins, if more and more people buy into Bitcoin and start using it, and it becomes a staple of currency, it becomes an actual store of value, as some people are using it for, um, then the value of Bitcoin actually will go up. So by saving your money, you can make money, as opposed to what we do right now, where saving your money, your money gets eroded away, your money goes away. Um, I'm not going to go too much further into this because I am trying to keep these episodes shorter. And also, who wants to deal with this headache any further? This is not the topic that people really like. But I just want to relate this to one other thing briefly before I sign off of here. Uh, and that is, I, I have a number of friends who are concerned about uh, housing costs and the costs of health care and the costs of food and so forth. And those are a problem. The price of all these things has gone up, and it has become more difficult to get a reasonable apartment in most areas. Uh, it has become extremely difficult to get affordable childcare if you need to work, if you're a single mother or a single parent of any sort, and you need to uh, put your child into a good care facility while you're at work. It's extremely expensive. Um, now, part of the reason for this is because we've been expanding the money supply. So as we inflate the currency, and, and shuffle that inflated value, we shuffle that, that value that we created into specific purposes. There are other purposes which are left out. And so the, the buying power that is chasing after those other purposes has to go up at some point because now there's more dollars, dollars in circulation. Um, in large measure, I think a, what a lot of people are trying to do with uh, a lot of the concerns of like, well, we need to do something about housing costs. Well, they don't want to adjust how much housing there is 
or if they do, they don't really want to do it in a very sensible way by allowing the marketplace, okay, we're going to open up these areas of land uh, or these blighted communities. If you want to come in here as a developer and put in some nice apartments, they will not be... Uh, they will not be, uh, uh, you know, rent controlled or anything like that. If you want to put in some really nice apartments and may expand the housing that's available in these areas, then you can do that and you can try to make money on it. Uh, and a lot of places would do that. You don't really see these housing prices being such a massive problem in certain areas like Oklahoma City or uh, Dallas. Like, yes, the value of these places is going up, but it's not causing people to be incapable of making their payments. These are pr primarily problems in the, uh, the Northeast, along uh, the California coast, and in cities that basically have controls on whether or not you can actually charge higher rents in given areas, and rent control and things like that. But what you're doing here is you're trying to fix most of what's going on here, well, we need to provide rental assistance to people. We need to provide housing assistance to people. Okay, so you're trying to solve the problem of supply and demand, not by addressing the supply or the demand. You're just trying to patch together the incomes of people so that they can partake in that supply and demand system. Maybe it's time that we stop messing around with the, the currency and stealing it out from underneath people where... You know, when I first started working, um, you know, $6 an hour was actually a pretty good wage. I'm not quite that old. It was, you know, $10 an hour was actually a pretty good wage. Um, nowadays, you really can't find somebody to work for $15 an hour. It's difficult to get anybody to work for $15 an hour and to do a mediocre job. Uh, we need to readdress ourselves to the concerns of supply and demand. And I'm going to reiterate something that I think I've said before on this podcast, but I need to say it again just because it bothers me every time. Capitalism is not a system. Capitalism is what people do when you leave them free to make decisions for themselves. And for the most part, capitalism is actually a great thing within society people blame capitalism for scarcity scarcity existed long before capitalism it will definitely exist if you manage to get rid of capitalism in fact it will get worse as milton friedman said said if the uh the government were put in charge of the sahara there'd be a shortage of sand he's definitely right about that uh it sounds absurd but it is true but to bring this back to civic religion briefly there's a, an enormous amount of danger when you are stealing people's income from out, out from under them or their savings out from under them. So somebody might have saved up, you know, might have taken two or three years to save up what would have been a pretty good down payment on a house a few years ago, but because of inflation, they might need to save up a little bit more. And when you're talking about young people who need uh, the ability to put their feet onto some rungs of the ladder so that they can move up the economic ladder the more you make those rungs kind of slide downward under the pressure of their feet, and inflation is a way of doing that, uh, the more they're going to feel somehow screwed by the society and left out in the cold. This is why people have a problem against capitalism. It's not capitalism that is that is inflating the currency out from underneath them. It is not capitalism that is failing to pay them a, a good wage. It is the education system that failed to equip them for this world. It is it, it, just because it's money that we're talking about doesn't mean it is capitalism. As I said before, money is just a way to uh, uh, produce a fungibility between products. 
to make a, an exchange possible between people who wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Uh, capitalism is the is the the basic idea of capitalism is that you are expanding benefits for the world at large in order to be better off yourself. That is basically what capitalism is. It's not all good, and some of it can be predatory. I agree with that. Where the, the line is between good and predatory is extremely difficult to say. It's a fractal. So at any given time, that line, that line might shift a little bit. But there's you need a certain amount of personal responsibility, as I was saying before. like people, It really needs to be, to be drummed into people that you need to be responsible for yourself. And I don't mean responsible for yourself in a, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps sort of way, but the decisions that you make are your decisions and they should impact you. It should be a good thing that when you make wise decisions for yourself, that that affects you and you get the benefit of that effect. It should not be a good thing that we try to uh, uh, override the consequences of people's foolish decisions to a certain extent we should have forgiveness and things like that. But if someone is going to be repeatedly foolish with their decisions and squander the things that they were given, which is not, I'm not saying this is what everyone does, but there are some people out there who do that. Some people who are in, intent on drilling down into the depths of hell with their life. And if you, if you try to fix their behavior or fix their situation by remedying them with money, you are just going to end up funding their descent into madness even further. This is, this is why the problem with homelessness is not primarily a money problem. It is simply not. Um, there are other, other factors involved in that. Anyway, that is, um, that is for another day. But basically, what I'm trying to get at here is that fooling around with the money supply in this modern monetary theory way is essentially a way to guarantee that the middle class will be squeezed, that it will be more and more difficult to get out of poverty if you are a poor person because they're going to need to be chasing an ever higher pay rate um, with very little prospect of actually developing uh, a professional career. It is true, a lot of people can develop a professional career, but why are we loading on top of people who need to be working the hardest in order to, to develop a professional career the additional burden that the, every dollar that they try to save is going to be worth less year after year? Why would we do that? That's a terrible thing to do. Uh, and, and as I was saying earlier, this is this is eroding the value of what people have on the basis that the banks will be able to select people who will win not just for themselves, but for the society at large. It doesn't appear to me that that has been the case. Certain aspects of society have been getting better, um, like technology is actually getting cheaper, more widely available. Many things are getting better. But to erode the buying power of the savings of somebody who might have worked 60 years of his life driving a taxi or something like that, uh, to erode the value that he saved up in the bank because we want to, you know, uh, put uh, entrepreneurs out there. It's, it's like, well, I'm sorry, there's just a better way of doing this. You don't need to do that. And why not? Why are we allowing the Federal Reserve to steal that value out from underneath people when what we should be doing is encouraging people who might be on those lower rungs? Hey, if you can save money, you'll earn interest in the bank. You won't lose value over time. Your, your value will stay the same in terms of your buying power, and you'll earn 3% interest per year on any dollars you manage to put in the bank. And over the course of 60 years, that can actually be a lot of money. 
Why are we playing this game? And this is an additional concern. So we've got Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all of these things which are uh, not necessarily inflation-proof. Why do you think it's going to be so difficult for people who uh, who are depending upon Social Security to retire over the next you know few years? You might retire this year. Social Security will have enough money, but they're not going to have enough money 20 years from now if inflation keeps going at the 5 6 7% range. The outlays just aren't there, and there aren't enough workers to supply the money, and there probably will not be. The, the insolvency of that system is essentially guaranteed by an inflationary model, by modern monetary theory. I've got to knock this off. I was going to try to keep this to half an hour, and also I didn't want to give people too much of a headache because of uh, um, uh, the topic. Most people just can't handle financial, financial topics. Uh, uh, there is one other thing I wanted to say, though. I guess you're just going to have to suffer through it, or you can skip to Joe Rogan or whoever you listen to after this. Uh, that doesn't bother me. Um, my apologies if this does give you a headache or if this is just basically annoying. Money is an abstraction. So we abs- use an abstraction uh, in order to uh, facilitate exchange more easily, right? We also have this tendency to abstract away from that abstraction uh, in order to set value on other things. So people get very upset that Jeff Bezos has so many billions of dollars, that Elon Musk has so many billions of dollars, that Warren Buffett, you know, insert your favorite uh, evil billionaire right here, uh, has so many billions of dollars. People get upset about that because it seems extremely unfair. But a great example is Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg, if I recall correctly, uh, I don't remember when this was, he tried to sell some of his stock because he's got all these billions of dollars. He's got so much money. He tried to sell some stock uh, for some project and the Facebook stock took a pretty big dip. What we're doing here is we're using an abstraction, money, to place a, a, a an understandable or conceivable value on another abstraction, intellectual property, which is what stocks are. Stocks are basically property in an organization. So we create an organization, we divvy up stocks, we put those stocks on the market, and people trade those stocks back and forth under the understanding that, well, I'll hold this stock for this period of time because the stock might go up in value and then I'll sell it because it might go down in value at that point. Um, and everybody's trying to play that game and that's that's where a lot of investing is happening. But we're doing this with money. We're, what, what we're doing is we're, um, we're valuing these things with money when a lot of these billionaires don't actually hold property. They own stocks. They own things that if they were to start selling these en masse, the actual value of that property would tank because, oh, the CEO, the guy who created it, is selling half of his stocks. Clearly, the stock is going to go down. We've got to dump it. So then suddenly the stock that might have been, well, he's got, you know, however many, 20 million shares that are valued at $150 a piece. Maybe the stock price tanks to $20 a share. And maybe that however many billions of dollars he had, I don't even know what that math would work out to. You can do it if you want. However many millions, billions of dollars that that is, is suddenly worth like far, 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 far less. And on top of that, everybody who is investing in that company on a long-term basis theoretically just took a huge hit because the CEO tried to sell some money and everybody overreacted. So we're playing with these abstractions and then you, you, you stick inflation in there as an additional concern. And it's just like, there are so many abstractions going on here that like, I, I just think you're in dangerous territory if you're trying to say, well, the billionaires have too much money. It's like, well, I, I, I doubt very much that billionaires actually have 
lots and lots and lots of cash, you know. I doubt very much that it might be lots and lots and lots of cash for the average person sitting in a bank. Uh, and yes, there are lots of companies that are holding reserves like Bitcoin. Um, and that's actually, you know, I think quite sensible because if you are going to hold cash, why stick it in a dollar form where it's going to erode under inflation? Stick it in a form where it might actually gain some money. Uh, be paid to save. Don't pay to save. Uh, being, pa being paid to save is a good thing. Paying to save your money is you just being taken advantage of. Um, that's the way I see it. Uh, th this, this, this antagonism that people are dead set on having against capitalism, against uh, uh, successful people. And I, I have antagonism against uh, uh, certain successful people too. I don't think um, Zuckerberg is necessarily a good person, but he definitely did create something that a lot of people see value in. I personally think Facebook is a cesspool. But this is the relativity of value. We can we can decide the value of these things uh, unequally. Anyway, that is basically the idea that I was talking about. Like, you need to start thinking of these things as abstractions, and you need to start thinking of them in different terms than just, well, he's got all this money. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He's got a lot of property. He's built a lot. Of, he's built a large part, portfolio of property, and if you are thinking that you're going to tax his wealth, he's going to start selling off that property, which is going to lose value as a result. And it's, it's also going to make it more difficult for people to start a Facebook, to have an Amazon.com, to produce a show like Wheel of Time, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's going to make it more difficult for people to start a telecom company, to put up uh, uh, more uh, data lines across the country, to, uh, to put more satellites in space to give you rural access to the internet in the Kalahari uh, and in um, Indonesia, all over the world. Um, these things take money, and I think entrepreneurs should be rewarded for what they do, but I just don't think that we should use an inflationary system to reward them or to give them access to money and then demonize them for having built up a property. I think we should stop using modern monetary theory. I think they should basically stop printing money forever. I, I think we could do worse than going on to some stable coin concept where we're just going to maintain a specific value or you know if they continue to inflate the currency more and more people are going to be driven into crypto uh the government will try to get its hand in crypto but crypto is probably too quick uh and too valuable already for the government to be able to fully crush without fully crushing the freedoms that we have in the united states that we should cherish and that are part of our civic religion i think we do have certain aspects of our civic religion that are important um, but the way we talk about money, the way we talk about fiscal policy is extremely dangerous. Like people are talking, like people are talking about, um, uh, as I was saying, like housing assistance, as though there are no programs out there to help poor people at all. And there are loads of programs. We spend a trillion dollars or more a year on a national level on these programs. And if you add up all the local spending, all the state spending on these programs as well, we're talking an enormous sum of money. But the problem is we're trying to treat the problem from a financial level rather than a production level. We're trying to treat the problem as though the money is the problem. The money is not the problem. The amount of resources that are available is the problem. And there are too many people who seem to think that production of resources is no longer a valid pursuit, that 
the production uh, of resources is not the problem. It's just the distribution that somehow uh, the billionaire class is consuming too many houses. Well, you do have BlackRock buying an awful lot of houses and renting them out, but they're not consuming them. They're renting them out. So maybe you should try to get started, save a little bit of money and build a house. And of course, I just made the case that inflation is going to make it very difficult for you to do that. Anyway, I don't know. You can think what you want to think about this. I've rambled clearly too much. I'm giving myself a headache, so I'm going to go have a whiskey and uh, probably do some painting in a room in my house. Uh, The walls, not on canvas this time. Anyway, I hope everyone got something out of this. Uh, If you like it, please share it with a friend. Give it a rating, review. You can shoot me an email at uh, thepastwithin at gmail.com. I really like that name. I think it's a better name. Just Another Bite was a good name. Uh, but it was an inside joke, and uh, Ryan never understood what I was talking about when I said, no, I, I addressed it. I had an episode where I explained why that is a joke. Um, so, yeah, shoot me an email at justanotherbytepodcast at gmail.com. Actually, I think it's – I still have access to Just Another Bite Podcast, but it, the new one is uh, the past within at gmail.com. And I plan to be around again pretty soon. Thanks for listening. And keep in mind that the world is big, life is messy, and the devil is in the details. Be decent out there, everyone. <laughs>